Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast of Latrobe Asia, where we discuss the news, events, and general happenings of Asia's states and societies. I'm your host, Nick Bisley, the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia. On 30th of June, Rodrigo Duterte was sworn in as the Philippines' 16th president. The 71-year-old is the first occupant of the Malacanang Palace to hail from Mindanao, the large southern island known for its long-running low-intensity conflicts. He joined the campaign late, ran in an overtly populist manner with claims that Manila Bay would be turned red with the blood of criminals among his many notable utterances. More importantly, he won office handsomely, easily defeating his rivals who seemed colourless and flat-footed in contrast to the energetic outsider. Observers outside the country were stunned by his sudden rise to power. In both his tone and at times violent rhetoric, he seemed to many to be a Southeast Asian version of Donald Trump, and more evidence of the global anti-establishment populist zeitgeist. Yet Digong, as he is known to many in the Philippines, represents a much more complex figure than this. While an outsider to the Manila establishment, he was the mayor of Davao City for more than 20 years. And though superficially he seems to appeal most to less affluent Filipinos, his electoral support was plainly widespread. But what kind of leader is Duterte? What changes does he want to bring to Southeast Asia's second largest population? He's largely unknown outside the Philippines, and during the campaign sent wildly diverging signals about his foreign policy priorities. So just where is he likely to take the country's international policy? Joining me to discuss this most interesting and intriguing political leader is Dr. Nicole Curato. Nicole is an ARC Early Career Research Fellow at the Institute for Governance and Policy Advice at the University of Canberra. Welcome to the program, Nicole. Hi, Nick. Thanks for inviting me. So let's start with the man himself. Who is Rodrigo Duterte and what's his backstory? Right. Well, first of all, I think, as all academics do, I will start with a caveat. So I approach <laughs> this as a sociologist who's done research in disaster-affected communities as part of my ARC project. I'm not a political insider, so most of my observations are based on how um, the people I talked to, I interviewed and observed, appreciate Duterte, the leader. Coming from what I observed during my fieldwork, and these are disaster-affected communities by Typhoon Haiyan, one of the most remarkable things that they like about Rodrigo Duterte is he's a man of action. And that is not something we take for granted in the Philippines because there's always a contrast drawn between talk and action. So in the case of Haiyan, for example, Duterte was able to exemplify his man of action characteristic by actually going there in the disaster-affected community, delivering aid very quietly, no fanfare, no media, brought in the world-class medical personnel that provided aid in Tacloban City. That is something. So that is one among many examples that support the narrative of Duterte as a man who does things and doesn't just say things. I think we have to draw that contrast because in the campaign, especially the way he was covered by mainstream media, the focus is always on his words. But for a lot of people on the ground, the focus is on the action. So he was mayor of Davao for you know, more than 22 years, so nearly a quarter of a century in charge right. of the, the biggest city on second biggest island, Mindanao in the right. south. How important is that, do you think, for his prospective presidency? Davao is very symbolic because the narrative of Davao City is it's this city from the south. And as you mentioned, it's very much um, defined by conflict and disorder. And there is this man who really transformed this city to becoming one of the most livable cities in Southeast Asia. That is not an insignificant achievement, especially if you compare Davao City with nearby um, cities, municipalities and provinces in the rest of Mindanao. Of course, a big part of that Davao City narrative of bringing in the peace and order 
is the mayor's very tough approach against criminality. And that is where the allure is coming from, from a lot of people from urban centers. Let's not forget that one of the first constituencies that threw their support to Rodrigo Duterte are people from urban areas. And that is because the narrative of Davao City was very strong. It offers the possibility that if you have a strong mayor who can really get rid of crime, criminality, and also cut red tape in terms of delivering services in the day-to-day transactions people have in the city hall. It's really a very alluring narrative for people all over the country. So yes, you're right. The story of Davao City is very important. It's also very symbolic because it's not often the case that we hear a success story of a city in the South transforming itself. And so there's a sense that what he could do to Davao he could do to the country. Absolutely, yes. And that's really one of the main things that he campaigned on. His tagline during the campaign was change is coming. And integral to that is not just his own way of campaigning for himself, but the way people from Davao City really support that narrative. So you have really true believers coming from Davao City who support him. And that's, again, not an insignificant achievement. It's not dissimilar to um, the appeal of Firstly, I guess Jokowi in Indonesia, who was a successful mayor of Jakarta, I mean, obviously a bigger city, but also Modi in in India. He was a leader of Gujarat and this sort of sense that he'd turned Gujarat into this very successful, economically prosperous part of India, that he could do this for the country. I wanted to just ask a question about Mindanao. So he's the first president from Mindanao. I mean, how important do you think that is, either for his politics or for how he's going to govern? I think just as far as identity politics is concerned, it's very meaningful. I've had my own um, little tour of Mindanao talking to students there from Iliga and from Marawi. And these are students who are very conservative, religiously conservative, but would throw their support to a man who's been accused of misogyny, right? Mm. But one of the most fascinating things in my conversations with these students is the weighing, the weighing of how his misogyny is, yes, it's a character flaw, but the fact that he's very proud of his Maranao heritage really matters. I think, Nick, one of the most interesting things that happened in his final political campaign rally two nights before the election, was he shouted, Allahu Akbar, in front of a massive crowd of people. You don't huh. see that every day. And he did say that by saying, you know, my mother is has a Maranao background, my family is Muslim. And that is pretty symbolic, especially in the context now where we tend to demonize cultures that are very different from what we're used to. So yes, that is very symbolic. And then the second thing I want to say is, when he assumed power, attention suddenly shifted to Mindanao. When he won elections, he never traveled to Manila until, I think, if I'm not mistaken, his inauguration day. Business leaders went to Davao City. He formed his cabinet from Davao City. The media set up in Davao City. Um, They started calling his office there the Malacanang of the South. So literally and figuratively, all eyes are now in Mindanao. And that, again, is something that we have to acknowledge. And finally, I think it's very fascinating that in the campaign season, one of the biggest catchwords is Imperial Manila. So in a way, it's very reflective of the discontent that people have in terms of the attention being given to the capital and the lack of attention being given um, to the South. So in a way, that is something that Duterte delivers in the political conversation. Yeah, I remember seeing some of the reporting about if you want a seat in government, you're going to have to go to Mindanao. And, That's right. And, yeah, the world's biggest job fair yeah, happened quite, in Davao City something. after he won and president. And given, I mean, given the contrast, I mean, for people who are not familiar with the Philippines, given the contrast that Manila has been this sort of premier city that dominates the country and has done for decades is, is really quite striking. Well, let's turn to the election itself. 
What issues did he campaign on, and what promises has he made? Right. Actually, it's very interesting because one of his successes is he was able to reframe the issues in the elections. If we look at the earlier um, presidential frontrunners, most of their campaign promises um, revolve around the issue of poverty, revolve around the promise of delivering in- inclusive growth. Because of course, the Philippines has had unprecedented growth um, in the Aquino administration, but the main criticism is it wasn't really felt among the poorest sectors and the middle classes as well. So that has been the narrative of the campaign for quite a while until Duterte entered the picture and reframed the issue to something more basic, which is peace and order. And that really gained traction. If we compare the surveys, regular surveys held outside the electoral season about what are the top concerns of Filipinos, it's usually inflation, uh, lack of jobs, um, health, or some, some mm, these yeah. three. But when Duterte entered the picture and the survey question asked, what are the issues you want your presidential candidate to solve? criminality, drugs are on the top of the list. I think that's a very good indicator on how Duterte was able to reframe um, the issues in this election. So he, co- he campaigned precisely on that issue of getting rid of criminality, restoring peace and order, going after drug lords. We've seen in the past 15 days on how this has been very much central to the developments in the political scene. So if you watch Philippine news every day, Probably the first 15 minutes of primetime news programs are devoted to criminals being killed, summary executions of petty thieves, police officers being told that it's okay, go after these drug lords, Duterte will protect you, Um, he will support you, don't be afraid of the Commission on Human Rights. So that's been the kind of developments, I'm doing the air quotes here, those are the kinds of developments um, that we've seen. So if your question is, what is his campaign promise? It is criminality or getting rid of criminality. Has he delivered on that campaign promise? Well, yes, to a certain extent, as far as the changes now are concerned. But of course, the methods are very much subject to debate. And were there other issues broadly? I mean, did he make commitments around redistribution of wealth and, and sort of decentralization? Or was that, was that something that's just come afterwards? Right. He's actually very vocal as well during the campaign season in saying that he is a socialist. And it's very fascinating because for a country like the Philippines, a lot of people are kind of allergic to any vocabulary that draws from the language of the left. Mm -hmm. It's part of the American legacy. Duterte was very effective in saying, I'm a socialist, and there are very clear indications of his commitment to that kind of policy or that perspective as far as inviting people from the left are concerned. So we now have people from the Philippine left who are in charge of the National Anti-Poverty Commission. Um, Someone is also... Um, now put in office for the Department of Social Welfare and Development. Department of Agrarian Reform is also now a part of the portfolio of the left. So this is the first time that we've seen personalities who are always been critical of government to now be part of government. So to that extent, you can see some empirical manifestations of Duterte's pronouncements. But of course, we also have to balance that because part of his cabinet are also people who are committed to the general mainstream economic agenda. A lot of it is also a continuation of previous policies, not just in the Aquino government, but way back um, in the Arroyo administration too. In the overseas coverage of, of Duterte, which came very late, there was a lot of fixation on some of his more colorful language. What's your impression of why he uses that language and whether it was serious, did he mean what he was saying, or this is just a way of getting attention? 
Right. Earlier you mentioned or you described him as a populist. And actually, some of the literature now on populism actually says that aside from distinguishing the people from the other, in this case, the criminal, one of the main characteristics of contemporary populists is bad manners. Mm. It's the coarsening of the political language. And we see that in many other contexts. So it's not unique to him. Donald Trump is another Mm. parallelism. If we see it from the perspective of performance, I would say that, yeah, it's kind of expected because the Philippines has such a saturated social media environment. And for you to gain traction, you do need to have that colorful language. I don't know what his precise motivations are, but if we look at this from the perspective of the audience, particularly the respondents I have talked to in my own research, they don't seem to mind Mm. because they think that, yeah, you need the coarsening of the political language to articulate the level of frustration that we have. Who wouldn't swear if you are stuck in traffic for three hours? Who wouldn't swear if you've queued for a train for the past four hours and when you get there, the train doesn't work? This is kind of understandable. So I think as far as the coarsening of the language is concerned, I personally feel offended. As a woman, when he made a rape joke against an Australian missionary, I feel offended when he catcalls female journalists. But I also understand the perspective of those who are appreciative of what Duterte has done, that this is a character flaw. We may not necessarily agree, but he has redeeming qualities. And it's interesting to look at the parallels outside the country, that way in which a kind of language that mainstream political figures would think is third rail stuff, you're you're dead if you use this kind of language, is in fact the opposite. It's electoral kind of catnip. And it works because people are prepared to go, oh, he doesn't actually mean that. Let's turn to his time in office. So on the 30th of June, he was inaugurated. He has, at the moment, a single six-year term. What are his priorities? You mentioned earlier some of the things that have happened already. What's your sense of how he's going to, to travel? Right. Well, aside from his main campaign promise of peace and order, one of his biggest uh, policy platforms is the shift to a federal system. He thinks shifting to federalism will actually resolve um, insurgencies in the South. He thinks you have to empower local governments more. That issue has started to gain traction in the House of Representatives. So I think If I'm not mistaken, um, there are already three bills filed in terms of convening um, different kinds of modalities in terms of how you change the constitution. So that is starting to gain traction. Um, Of course, I'm not the kind of academic who will give forecasts, (laughs) but there is enough reason to suggest that this kind of proposal has momentum in the sense that Duterte enjoys very good mandate. He didn't only win landslide victory in the elections. The last survey of the trust rating for him as excellent, which is comparable to the rating that Aquino had um, six years ago when he first um, got into power. The Philippines generally has been kind of allergic with the idea of constitutional change because it's always associated to a scheming president who wanted to stay on in power because there's a limited six-year term. But Duterte is doing it at the very beginning of his administration with a clear aim at federalism. So let's see where that goes. So it's definitely worth monitoring. I mean, the political scientist in me sort of says you look at a guy, an outsider like this, who's coming about bringing prospects of very significant change, both constitutional, economic, political. There are big vested interests at stake who are stand to lose, who are going to coalesce against him. What are the sort of stumbling blocks that he faces? Is the Manila elite going to be able to get their act together and stop what he's trying to achieve? Or do you think they're too divided? Right, that's kind of difficult to answer at the moment. For example, one of the first things that he did when he got elected was his cabinet 
had a big economic summit in Davao and started to have a consultation process with Manila elite, right, or the Philippine elite. So far, I don't see any major big critics against Duterte as far as the elites are concerned. Maybe a lot of it has to do with them weighing up how their economic interests will be compromised by Duterte. But so far, um, his pronouncements have been promising as far as businesses are concerned. He says he will cut red tape for you to apply for business permits. If we classify Duterte as a populist and we reflect back on the history of populist leaders in the Philippines, they've always been very vulnerable to challenge, especially when the scandals start coming up. And here I'm referring to, for example, Joseph Estrada, very popular, charismatic leader, but wasn't to the elite's liking. The initial front runner for this election, Vice President Binay, was also a charismatic populist leader, but was brought down by a lot of corruption scandals. So if we categorize Duterte as a populist leader and someone who is not particularly acceptable to some segments of the elite, then I wonder what kind of opposition emerges in this context. Of course, this is speculative because at the moment, the issue is not even the kind of resistance or opposition that Duterte has, but it's the fact that there is no legitimate, credible opposition. Uh, My sense is a lot of people are still weighing, thinking about the first 100 days, what kinds of policies he will make and what kinds of um, business interests he will confront. At the moment, the only business interest that he's confronting is mining by assigning um, Gina Lopez as head of the Environment and Natural Resources Department, who is a staunch um, anti-mining campaigner. But on the level of policy, I still don't see any reason why the elite would be a bit worried. And just finally, you, you mentioned earlier in the first two weeks or so of his presidency, some of the worst fears that people had about things like vigilantism and basically a suspension of the rule of law and due process for certain issues seems to have played out. Do you think that's an initial burst that will be given its head and then, or do you think that the concerns that that particularly human rights campaigners have are going to get stronger and that we'll see a real um, sort of South American style presidency on that front? The way I will answer this question will come from the normative theory perspective, because if I were to look at the sociology of this and look at how the everyday people see this war against drugs, war against criminals that Duterte launched, a lot of them are supportive. Mm-hmm. A lot of them make that moral calculation that, yes, these people deserve to die, they're scum, they don't belong to a civilized society, so let's support the president in this campaign. That is the sociology of it. I imagine this is because drugs is an everyday issue. Criminality is an everyday issue. That's probably why there's a certain consensus for a big part of the public to support this. It's underpinned by a certain set of values. But from a normative theory perspective, I will say, well, this is wrong. Mm. That's why human rights exists. So yes, the human rights campaigners have already raised red flags. Even the vice president herself already said that we have to investigate these extrajudicial killings. Some senators have already spoken against these developments. But I would imagine that as long as that public support for such kind of methods exist, then the president will still enjoy that certain sense of legitimacy. Just in conclusion, if we are thinking of the kind of opposition we can have to confront these kinds of sentiments, then we have to be more creative in our argumentation. We can't just invoke human rights. We have to justify why human rights exist and why they matter, because apparently for a lot of people, it's, it's not universal. <laughs> Well, that's all the time that we have. The Philippines is plainly entering a hugely interesting period, and I look forward to having you back on the program to have another look at one of Asia's most fascinating countries. 
Thanks for being part of the program. Thank you. You can follow Nicole on Twitter at Nicole Curato, that's at N-I-C-O-L-E-C-U-R-A-T-O, or me, at Nick Bisley. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast of La Trobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to Asia Rising on iTunes or SoundCloud. And while you're there, leave a rating and a review and help us spread the word. Thanks for listening.